Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the top political stories of the week concerned the Trump administration tightening the rules around legal immigration. They were tightening rules that could deny green cards or citizenship to immigrants who need public assistance. It was called the public charge rule, and it would impact immigrants who are more likely than not to receive certain public benefits for 12 months out of a 36-month time period, things like food stamps, welfare, or housing assistance. Criticism was quick to come, and there was also lots of talk about challenging the rule changes legally. For more on this, we spoke to Ted Hessen. He's an immigration reporter at Politico, and starts off by telling us how these new rules would work. This is a sweeping regulatory change that will affect the legal immigration system specifically. And the biggest change will be the impact on people, immigrants who are applying for green cards, and that's to to remain in the U.S. on a permanent basis. Under this regulation, there's a list of benefits that if the person has received them or is deemed likely to receive them in the future, they can potentially be denied a green card. And what are these benefits? We're talking about food stamps, welfare, Medicaid, housing assistance, known as Section 8. Um, These are all things that uh, potentially, that that if an immigrant is deemed more likely than not to receive those benefits, that they could be denied a green card. And beyond that, the the regulation even sweeps into people who are applying for temporary visas. And, you know, something along the lines of half a million people are estimated by DHS every year um, to have to undergo a test uh, who have temporary visas to see if they might become dependent on these benefits if they arrive in the U.S. Is there a time limit on this? Like, let's say, you know, I, I'm going to use food stamps for a so- certain number of months uh, or, you know, a number of years. How do they kind of come to this determination? Well, the first thing is that this is a perspective rule. So it will largely affect benefits that are received after it goes into effect, which is going to be in mid-October in 60 days or so. And in particular, what they'll be looking at is benefit use that adds up to 12 months of use over a 36-month period, so over a three-year period. What they're trying to do is look very broadly at each applicant and say, are they likely to use these benefits? And are there certain programs, I was reading in your article, there are certain things that are not considered in this. What are those programs? The Children's Health Insurance Program is one example of one that in an earlier draft of this rule, it was not clear whether this would be included or not. And that's a program that provides low-cost coverage to families that don't qualify. They earn too much for Medicaid, but they still need need some benefits. So that it will not apply to them. The use of Medicaid by children and pregnant women, as well as uh, women after a, in a 60-day period after giving birth, it will not apply to them, the use of Medicaid. And also uh, prescription drug subsidies, which was actually um, something that was in an earlier draft of this rule as a restricted benefit also will be excluded. You keep saying that this was a draft. So they've had this kind of notice out for a little while now. Uh, They barely just filed the final rule. So whatever, uh, you know, there was some changes that it kind of went through. What's been the reaction to this so far? 
Well, I should say that's the typical regulatory process in that the administration put out its draft rule back in October last year, and they solicited comments from the public. And actually, in this case, it really got a tremendous amount of comments. We're talking uh, 266,000, more than 266,000 comments. And many of them were in opposition to these changes, saying that it would uh, cause immigrant families to avoid benefits that they need, um, and even cause immigrant families to avoid benefits that aren't specifically restricted here, just because they may be afraid that what they're using is down the road going to block them from getting a green card. So, you know, we heard kind of a vast outcry against this rule, specifically from health providers, from educators, and also for advocates for the poor. The acting U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services Director, Ken Cuccinelli, praised this change. He said, we want to see people coming to this country who are self-sufficient. Earlier this month, uh, you guys there at Politico were reporting on some of these numbers already, how the rejection of immigrant visas based on public charge criteria and how it's increased under President Trump. Can you share some of those numbers? Back in January 2018, before this current regulation had been finalized, the State Department actually went ahead and changed its guidance to put a tougher standard into place in regards to who would be determined to be a public charge. And in particular, the State Department was dealing with people who apply for visas from overseas. But once this change had gone into effect, we saw that public charge denial skyrocketed. It went from about a thousand denials back in fiscal year 2016, which was the last year under former President Barack Obama, to something like 13,000 denials in uh, fiscal year 2018. And the trend is actually continuing from what we reviewed in 2019, which is uh, the current fiscal year. In particular, what we noticed was that Mexican nationals were seeing a huge increase in the percentage of public charge-based denials for immigrant visas. Um, So that was an interesting trend, and I think we'll we'll expect something similar to happen with these new changes that are going into effect um, with the DHS regulation that was released today. Reports are that uh, some of this stuff was pushed by uh, Stephen Miller, who's a senior White House advisor. Uh, We know he's a hardline guy on immigration. Also, the same with Ken Cuccinelli. But uh, these are just efforts for the administration to continue to get a handle on on the immigration situation. People um, in the Trump administration, current and former officials, have said that this is a major priority for Stephen Miller, who is essentially... Trump's uh, the architect of Trump's immigration agenda. And he's driven this forward. Uh, So you could see that he was really behind the scenes pressing hard to get this done sooner. Um, And I think part of the reason is they're expecting that this will be challenged in court. We already know that there are several lawsuits in the works and likely to come. And it could mean that this regulation gets blocked at some point and that they have to um, litigate it uh, in various levels of federal court. Ted Hessen, immigration reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Another big story that ended this week, and it started off as a small assault incident in Sweden, but turned into a big international affair, was that of rapper ASAP Rocky. He and two associates were found guilty of assault in a Swedish court, but will not face any more jail time. Rocky and his crew were in Sweden when they got into a fight with two young men who they say were following them. Rocky said that they were pleading with the men to leave them alone, but they didn't. They took a swing at his bodyguard and then a fight ensued. The case got a lot of attention from celebrities like Kim Kardashian West and Kanye West and even got the president involved. He contacted the prime minister of Sweden and even sent some angry tweets saying that they need to let him go. It went so far that President Trump even sent his top hostage negotiator to monitor the trial. 
For more on this, we spoke to Alex Marshall. He's a reporter for the New York Times and tells us how the judge ruled. At the end of June, he was playing a concert in Stockholm and was followed. He got into an alter- his group got into an altercation with two sort of teenagers in the city who ended up having their headphone, one of their headphones are broken. And they kept on following ASAP Rocky and his bodyguard and his friends around and around. And eventually a fight broke out. ASAP was seen throwing one of them to the ground and then kicking and punching him. ASAP also put out his own video claiming it was in self-defense and cooperated with police. But the way Swedish justice works is you can be, if you're deemed a flight risk, and most foreigners are, you can be locked up while an investigation is ongoing in a Swedish detention center. And from that moment, the case almost exploded and it went from being what most people would consider a sort of small brawl in a back street into this humongous international diplomatic incident. And that finally came to a head today with the verdict. And despite, you know, what ASAP and his two co-defendants said that they acted in self-defense, that they were provoked, the judges decided that there was no evidence of that, or at least there was no reason for them to have basically beaten up a guy. You mentioned the Swedish justice system. You know, part of it was he was in jail for a month. He he spent about three quarters of that time before even being charged. And that kind of contributed to why there was such an international furor about it. The president, President Donald Trump, got involved in it. Also, he called the Swedish prime minister. He started tweeting at everybody saying, let him go. This was after, you know, Kanye he, he West. sent his special envoy for hostage negotiations. Right. I, I think that was like the big the point. Where, and, you know, by all accounts, he didn't do anything. He was just there to oversee what was happening. But in all, you know, he just got time served. He is going to have to pay some money to the defendant. How much is that going to be? It's going to be about um, $1,300, I think. It's hardly, it's hardly anything. Right. It's to be shared between the three of them based on oh, wow. their ability to pay. So I'm assuming Rocky will be the one who will, who will foot most of the bill. I mean, when, when it comes down to it, to, to many people, it will seem as a you know a completely overblown instance if that's all that happens at the outcome. Talking to any Swedish people about it, they also, throughout the trial, they couldn't see what the fuss was about from their side. You know, to them, they thought this was you know, a clear evidence, you know, clear incident of assault. And, you know, ASAP Rocky should face justice for it. And I think it's been a really interesting case for sort of looking at these two sort of conflicting worldviews almost. Although obviously interesting isn't a word which I I imagine ASAP Rocky or his two co-defendants or the prosecution side would want to use for this case. You know, for them, it was all as a very serious and incident and one I doubt any of them will want to repeat. A lot of the case surrounded the use of the potential use of a bottle. The prosecution were saying that Aesop and his crew threw a bottle at at him or, or you know, hurt him with a bottle somehow. I don't know if he was cut because hit of the him, bottle. Hit him with yeah. a bottle. And, and, and the there head, are pictures of, of Aesop holding a bottle, but he said he put it down after. And that's another reason why they just let him off with time served because they didn't adequately prove that he was using the bottle to hit him or anything. The judges ended up putting a lot of weight on the only two independent witnesses of the event, who were two young Muslim girls who gave testimony in the trial. And both of those said they saw bottles but didn't see any being actually used in the fight. One one initially told the police she did see it, but changed her testimony during the trial. And, you know, I think the judges have decided that those women are the only people who could be deemed completely reliable in this. They said the bottle was present, but they didn't see anything 
of it being used. So obviously, ASAP Rocky and no, neither of the co-defendants either could be charged for a, a really vicious assault in that case. And they also, the judge also said that the injuries weren't consistent with, you know, sort of being properly assaulted with a bottle. You know, he might, there might have been some smashed glass, which the guy could have rolled over. And, you know, it's just literally not known. Right. So he has to pay $1,300, some other court fees. He has his time served. Is that all? There's no, no there's nothing like uh, ASAP Rocky's never welcome in Sweden again or anything like that, is there? No, he's, well, he's he's welcome in Sweden. He he shouldn't commit a crime again in Sweden. <laughs> right, exactly. That's for, for sure. The judgment's conditional for two years. So if he does, if if he did happen to commit another crime for some reason in Sweden, the the judgment for that would be harsher because of this incident if it was in the next two years. But no, he's welcome back in Sweden. He's welcome in Europe. He's meant to be playing three shows in Europe. Uh, you know, he's a huge draw for any hip-hop fan in Europe. So ASAP, is, he's going to want to come back to Europe, you know, to play, to see his fans, to earn as soon as he can. Whether personally he'll want to go back to Sweden anytime soon, we, we just don't know. Alex Marshall, European culture reporter for the New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks very much. Another story that got a lot of media attention was that of Michael Gargiulo. He was known as the Hollywood Ripper or the Boy Next Door Killer. He was found guilty of the murders of Ashley Ellerin and Maria Bruno and the attempted murder of Michelle Murphy. The case gained a lot of attention for the gruesome nature of the killings, which involved multiple stabbings and body mutilation. The other reason why this case got a lot of media attention was because actor Ashton Kutcher testified during the trial. At the time of one of the murders, Ashley Ellerin was Ashton Kutcher's girlfriend. He was set to meet her at his apartment, but she never came to the door. He assumed that she had already left without him, but little did he know, she was inside, dead. For more on this, we spoke to Andrew Mollenbeck. He's a West Coast reporter for iHeartMedia and helps us break down this story. These attacks, again, the two murders and attempted murder, go all the way back to 2001 in Hollywood, and they continued all the way until 2008. But the story actually goes farther back than that. Prior to coming to L.A., prosecutors say... Michael Gargiulo also murdered a woman in the Chicago area. Now, that goes all the way back to 1993. And the M.O. in all of these is similar. One of the other nicknames that prosecutors gave to him is the boy next door killer. And the reason behind that is in each of these, he found himself living right next to or even in the same building as the women that he would kill. He looked or found women who were attractive then he would stalk them, and once he found a way to get them alone, he would just viciously stab them for the purpose of, apparently, some sort of sexual thrill. There was never an allegation that he actually sexually assaulted them. It was just brutal stabbings, multiple murders here in the L.A. area. Again, also another one in the Chicago area. So we're talking about decades, the last of which was in 2008, and that was when a woman was able to fight him off. Uh, she was stabbed severely, but she did survive. Let's talk about Ashley Ellerin. She's one of the women in Los Angeles. And uh, one big moment in this trial that kind of elevated a little bit more was that she was either a girlfriend or she was going to be going out with actor Ashton Kutcher. And he actually testified to you know what he saw he was supposed to go out on a date with her and that just kind of elevated this a little bit more it just brought it out into the public sphere a little more 
that's how it got so much national and even international attention that, of course, early on in this months-long trial, Ashton Kutcher actually did take the stand, and he was talking about that night that he was planning to go over to Ashley Ellerin's home in the Hollywood area and pick her up, but by the time that he got there, she had already been murdered. And so that was, again, very early in this case. This went on for months, but that's really what put it on the radar for a lot of people. But even apart from that, she was just one of these series of women who really had no connection at all with this killer, but right. just they found themselves living next to him. And if he found them to be one of his targets, maybe they were attractive, he would go after them. So she just happened to be one of the targets. Uh, at that time, Ashton Kutcher wasn't even the famous actor that he is at least now. Uh, he was acting, but uh, he became well-known far after this one, going right. back all the way to 2001. But that was the first of the attacks in the L.A. area. When he testified, he said that, you know, he showed up late for the date. He thought maybe she left and he peeked inside the apartment and he said, oh, it looked messy. I just saw a bunch of red stains. I thought it was red wine on the floor. Little did he know these were the blood stains from from the brutal murder. And that's, you you mentioned it earlier, Gargiulo would you know viciously stab these women multiple times, 40 times, something like that. It was pretty horrible. We are talking about cutting off of body parts and, and really leaving them as symbols. What happens now, though, is the jury, which found him guilty of the two counts of murder and then the one count of attempted murder, the jury is going to reconvene later and then begins the sanity phase where jurors will have to decide what kind of mental state Michael Gargiulo was in when he was carrying out these series of attacks. So that's going to begin shortly after that will be the penalty phase in this particular trial. But down the road, he still does face a murder charge in the Chicago area. Now, this again goes all the way back to a high school friend. Uh, so that will happen after this case in the Los Angeles area completely wraps up with the sentencing phase. Is that where the defense was going throughout this trial, that he was in a fit of insanity? No, the, the defense really was arguing that DNA did not specifically link Gargiulo to a number of the attacks. They argued that it was more circumstantial, that he lived in the area, but they tried to make the case that there wasn't really good, hard evidence at each one of these linking Gargiulo to the murder. So that's really what they were laying the groundwork for. That, I mean, that just sounds a little weird, at least with regards to the case of Michelle Murphy. She's the one that fought him off. He was on top of her, stabbing her, and she grabbed the knife with her two hands and pushed him off and all. But they matched DNA from that scene to him. So he is at least right. placed in that instance. He was placed there. Right. And that was the most concrete of the evidence of the attack because of the knife blade uh, drew blood and, and left a blood trail in her apartment. And that one was in the Santa Monica area of Los Angeles. Uh, so that one was some pretty good evidence. In another case, uh, the booties that were found at one scene, he also had uh, similar booties in his attic of where he lived. But again, the defense was kind of arguing, well, that's just circumstantial that he happened to have the same booties. Doesn't mean he did it. But right. yeah, that last attack where the woman fought him off in Santa Monica that had the specific DNA linking it to him. Andrew Mollenbeck, West Coast reporter for iHeartMedia. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure, you got it. Don't forget to join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, 
and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.